0: Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that spends a lot of time thinking about where Etsy went wrong. I have a lot of feelings on that topic. <laughs> I'm your host Amanda and this is episode 180. Today's special guests are Christy and Chiara board members of the Indie Sellers Guild, a nonprofit dedicated to providing education and support to all online creative indie sellers around the world. The Indie Sellers Guild got its start in 2022 while organizing the Etsy strike, which we have talked about here in the past. That was when about 17,000 shops put their Etsy storefronts on vacation mode, meaning that customers could not shop from them. That was all a push back against some new Etsy policies and really worsening Etsy policies. Today, Christy and Chiara will be telling us about what led to the Etsy strike, the outcome, and what they are working on now. This is part one of our conversation, and I'll be back with part two next week. But before we jump into that, let's travel back in time for a moment. No, not very far just to August of this year (laughs) when I asked all of you to submit audio essays about your relationship and experiences with shopping secondhand and living that secondhand first way of life. Now, September got kind of wild, mostly because, you know, my series on the history of fast fashion turned into a much bigger project, which is the most close horse thing that could ever happen with a topic. Happens all the time, (laughs) as you know. And so I didn't get a chance to share them then. So now I'm going to be sharing them over the next few episodes. And this week's audio message is from Frances. So let's take a listen.
1: Hello, clothes horse. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Frances, and I've been thrifting for as long as I can remember. My mom, Hillary, used to take me all the time, usually to the Goodwill in our neighborhood, when I needed clothes, or especially before Halloween each year. We never bought new costumes. They were always put together from whatever we could find at the thrift store, usually plus some alterations from my mom, even though she didn't sew a ton. As a kid, wrapped up in the pressure of wanting to look and feel cool, I always rolled my eyes. I didn't understand why we couldn't just buy something new like everyone else. I don't think it was about the cost, though I'm sure it was a lot more affordable. She just knew that it was insane to buy something brand new that I would wear once and probably never again, though there was a particular Sailor Moon costume that I must have worn 200 times before I completely outgrew it. We would also find the local thrift store every time we visited a new place. I remember a cream-colored bag and a thick-knit cardigan from Colorado, both, both of which I wore for years. There was a white leather skirt with mod circle cutouts that was a gift from San Francisco that I regret letting go just because I didn't know how to style it. At the family cottage, we always went to the local secondhand store where around age 13, I picked up a Smashing pumpkin CD that became way too central to my personal identity. Looking back, I appreciate how thrifting was also something fun and creative that we did together at a time when my mom worked a lot. When I reflect now on my love of thrifting... It's deeply connected to her and those memories. I continued constantly thrifting through my teenage years and into adulthood. There was a perplexing pair of wool pants that surely belonged to an elderly man before me that I remember wearing constantly in my arts high school where the only dress code was creative expression and where I made many questionable sartorial choices. There were trips to Value Village in Montreal during university, seeking ugly Christmas sweaters, going out tops, summer sundresses I still wear, and one gorgeous forest green suede coat that I immediately drunkenly lost, RIP. There was no turning back to the kid who wanted a brand new wardrobe. I was in it for life, enthralled with the overload of amazing, unique, one-of-a-kind treasures to be found in every city and town. I still can't resist a local thrift store, though nowadays I'm also friends with local resellers and market vendors who always offer beautiful pieces and an engaging conversation about clothes. I put a lot of my creative energy in my custom web design business, where inspiration from a lifetime of thrifting makes its way into brand color palettes and fonts. I also started a secondhand resale project with my close friend, Caitlin, who's been thrifting with me since we met at 15 and both had objectively pretty terrible style. My condolences to all the listeners who were also aesthetically harmed by indie sleaze at a tender age. Reselling is a lot of work, but it's really fun and rewarding to help people find those pieces that make them feel most themselves. We've made so many new friends at our pop-ups and it feels amazing to be part of the solution to the deadly multi-headed hydra of fast fashions problems. I also volunteer at a local clothing swap called The Good Swap here in Toronto, where the founder introduced me to Clothesource. Of course, I can't end this audio essay without affirming how impactful Clothesource has been in my journey. It's my biggest source of education and inspiration, and I love this community. I would be super happy to connect with any fellow listeners. You can find me on Instagram at FrancisMayDesign. Uh, that's F R A N C E S M A Y design. And my resale project is called Lucky Duck Thrift. And you can find us there as well at Wear Lucky Duck. Uh, that's W E A R Lucky Duck. Thank you, Amanda.
0: Thank you, Frances, for taking the time to share your thoughts and experiences with us. It actually, when you're talking about some of the things that you'd found, uh, it reminded me of a very sad story involving a suede cape and not just any suede cape, literally the most perfect suede cape ever. I bought it on eBay. I wore it all the time. I have so many pictures of me in it. It was like three different shades of brown. Well, one of them was like a dark brown, almost black, and it's, it was so good. I wore it to South by Southwest and to go out, you know, to go out at night and to work, and it looked good with all of my clothes, and it was so, I mean, I had it for a really long time, but when I moved to LA, it became even more of a staple of my wardrobe, and it just disappeared one day. And... To this day, well, one, I have not been able to find a replacement, so I might need to share a photo on Instagram in case any of you see something like this out in the wild. But two, I'm like 99.9% sure that the manager of my building, my apartment building in L.A., stole it because she was doing weird stuff when I wasn't home, like letting her boyfriend hang out in my apartment and going in there herself, and it disappeared at that time. Anyway, I still feel sad about that cape when I see it in photos because it was one of my favorite, favorite things in my closet. And obviously a real unicorn because I haven't been able to find a replacement. Anyway, let's switch the topic away from very sad suede cape stories and talk about audio essays because it's time to announce the return of a clothes horse tradition it's that time of year again. If you've been hanging out around here long enough, then you know that I firmly believe that small business is the future. In fact, the future depends on smaller, more ethical businesses. Yes, not every small business is owned by a saint. I'll give you that. Some owners are terrible bosses. Some sell bad product. Some just don't care about their communities. And if they are bad, you should skip them. But even the worst small businesses have significantly smaller negative impact than the big baddies like Amazon or some, really most of my past employers. The fact is, most small businesses are run by people you know and they are just trying to make a living while doing the best job they can. Because I believe so much in the power of small business, it's importance for a better future. I'm always thinking of ways that we can lift these businesses up and get them exposed to more people. Well, no matter how you feel about the winter holidays, it's an important time of year for small businesses. And I've been doing a tradition around here for the holiday shopping season. I feature audio essays in each episode of the podcast in November and December. And these are all audio essays from small businesses. Source has grown a lot over the past few years, and our community that is always growing wants to support small businesses in any way possible. So this can actually be some great exposure for free to a bunch of rad people who share your values. What is an audio essay? Well, It's a recording that you make using either your phone or your computer. You email it to me at amanda at closehorse.world and I edit it, mix it, and add it to the episode. Now, I want to be very clear here that this is not an ad. It's your story and feelings about owning a small business, including, but not limited to, what motivated you to start a small business, why it's important to you, what you do, and why you do it. What have you learned along the way? What do you wish you had known back at the beginning? What do you feel your impact on your community is? And how do you think about that and try to improve it? And of course, right. I want you to include information about your business and where listeners can find you. Here are some tips. Write out what you want to say before you record it and try to fit it into five minutes or less. I'm not gonna turn you away if it's seven minutes, but I might have to make some serious edits if it's 10 minutes long. You know what I mean? So save me that work, and don't do work that you don't need to do by just cutting it down in the first place. It's also okay if you make a mistake while recording. I do it all the time. Rather than stopping and starting over, just say that part again and keep going. That's that's how the pros do it, like me. <laughs> and I will just edit out your mistake. I will make it like it never happened. Trust me, just carrying on that way is going to save you a lot of frustration, and it's going to actually result in a better finished product. Please, please record in a quiet room away from fans, air conditioners, bus stops, dogs, crying babies. Please don't go outside in the wind. Please try to make it as quiet as possible. Also, be sure to double check your recording before you send it. Yes, I have received fully silent recordings. And you know why? Because no one wants to listen to their voice. Just take a deep breath and deal with the discomfort of hearing your voice for a few moments, just to ensure that there's sound on there. (laughs) Please. When you email it to me, Please do not forget to include your name, your pronouns, and your Instagram handle. Now, the deadline for this project is November 1st. It is a first-come, 1st serve situation, meaning the sooner you get it into me, the more likely you're gonna be included in an episode. There is some wiggle room to submit it after November 1st, but what I don't want to happen is what happened last year where people were still sending me audio essays after Christmas, And that's, I feel terrible because they did the work and then I have to try to jam it in. And let's just not do that. It's just not good for any of us. So if you need more time, reach out to me now. But my advice to you is don't procrastinate, just do it. The longer you wait, the more stressful it's gonna be and the less likely you're gonna be to do it. Let's take a moment to thank this week's episode sponsor, a brand that I love and feel very honored to have supporting the show. Seriously, what a pat on my back! Ose Duro is a sustainable fashion brand based in Ghana that uses handmade textile techniques to create contemporary garments. All products are hand-dyed and sewn in Ghana with small-scale artisans and manufacturers to support the local apparel industry. This is a really big deal to me because as we've all learned in our series with the Orr Foundation, fast fashion has had an extremely negative impact on the local textile industry in Ghana. So what Ose Duro is doing is really important to me, and their clothing is colorful with bold prints and it's size inclusive with many styles offered in sizes extra small to 4x. They are also conscious of waste and they're always developing more programs to tackle textile waste. Plus, they collaborate with artists, designers, and other brands to bring unique and limited edition pieces. Furthermore, This is very important to me too. This is a brand that cares for its workers, priding themselves on taking full-time pay for a four-day work week. The staff enjoys three weeks of annual paid leave, 90 days of full-pay maternity leave, two weeks of full-pay paternity leave, full health insurance coverage, pensions, and other statutory benefits. This is unheard of in the fashion industry. You can learn more and check out all of their incredibly unique and wearable pieces. They're all going to become the best things you've ever bought, and you're going to wear them the rest of your life. You can find them at oseduro.com. You can find them on Instagram, at oseduro. And guess what? Oseduro has a special offer just for Close Horse listeners. Use promo code Horse 20 for 20% off your purchase. Once again, that's Close Horse 20 for 20% off your purchase. And I'll share that in the show notes. Thank you again for your support. Last year, I did a four-part series on the rise and history of Etsy called, embarrassingly enough, I thought I was clever at the time, the Etsy-sodes. I would urge you to go give those a listen if you have not yet because There's so much detail and I was kind of proud. I'm not going to lie. Chiara actually references them a few times in our conversation today, which, like I said, made me feel pretty good. I think also it will give you a much bigger perspective on why the way Etsy has been working for the past few years has been out of line with the original vision and mission of the company. Now I'm going to give you the really short Cliff Notes version of the rise of Etsy right now. But there's so much more involved. And it really also, I think it's really important to have a deeper understanding of the moment in time in which Etsy arose, so go check out those episodes. Uh, you also learn a lot about eBay. Um, eBay comes up a lot into conversations about Etsy and it's actually gonna come up today too. Here's the short version of it all. Etsy was founded by a young guy named Rob Kalin back in 2005. He wanted to create a platform that functioned like da da eBay, in that it connected individual sellers with customers eBay was, like, seriously, it was groundbreaking for making that idea possible and then completely normalizing it, that you could go online and buy something from an absolute stranger. In fact, without eBay, You don't have Depop, you don't have Poshmark, you don't have Mercari, and you certainly don't have Etsy. Kaylin's vision for Etsy is that it would be eBay, but for handmade items. And while it was a slow build for Etsy at first, the company received a lot of positive attention for constantly adding features that would make it easier for makers to build a strong small business. And the idea of fostering small businesses and building community around that were key components of the Etsy philosophy from the very beginning. In 2010, Kalen told the Wall Street Journal that his vision for the company had always been, quote, instead of having an economy dictate the behavior of communities, to empower communities to influence the behavior of economies. And early Etsy really did walk that walk of small business and community building, The company had these street teams, which were crafters who organized around things like better booth rates for art fairs and pop ups, like really out there bringing people together to take collective action, which is ironic because today we're going to talk about the Etsy strike and the Indie Sellers Guild. I feel like Caitlin would be a really big fan of of what's happening right now, of what Christy and Chiara and everybody else working on the Indie Sellers Guild are doing right now, I think he would be excited about that. What else? Early Etsy held entrepreneurial workshops for its sellers with names like how to grow your global Microbrand." I mean, that sounds pretty compelling. It offered shop critiques. It taught its sellers how to write press releases. It showed them the best practices of its most successful sellers. It was teaching them how to run a small business. It had its own magazine video cast called The Stork, spelled S-T-O-R-Q-U-E, which the New York Times called a DIY business school. I mean, this is great, right? Kaylin also hired the best Etsy sellers to literally work for the company in the hopes of being able to share their skills as both crafters and entrepreneurs directly with all of the sellers using the platform. The company also held weekly craft nights at their offices, and it had a book club and it created Etsy Labs, a community focused program that taught craft and business skills to the public. So there's all of this just really great stuff happening. And I'm sad that this was like eighteen years ago at this point because it sounds so amazing. like this is this is the future that I want. and It's in the past. Sad, right? Now, what's interesting about all of this, coming just into it with like a business perspective, is that from the very beginning, Kaylin was taking investment money from VC firms, meaning venture capital firms. And that kind of funding comes with serious strings attached. Trust me, I have worked for multiple companies that took that money or were trying to get that money And specifically, the strings that are attached are the promise of two things exponential growth, meaning major growth every year off into infinity, and maximum profitability, kind of like ASAP. And in many situations, that means profits are prioritized over people from day one. I've told you about the job I had working for a startup. It's hard to call them a startup because they were about five years in at that point, but we didn't have health insurance because profitability was the company's number one focus. It's what the investors wanted, and it's what they would need to hit in order to get more investment, which they were going to need to grow. This is the quandary that many, many startups face. Etsy is not the only one. Somehow in the beginning, Kalen was able to build this community aspect, do all of these things to help small businesses grow, really lifting up sellers, right? He was able to do that for a few years. And I'm, I'm kind of amazed by it. I'm kind of in awe of it because this stuff is expensive to do. And VC money doesn't usually let you do things like that. Maybe the investors felt that it was good PR it was all part of brand building. I don't know. It may have been that it was just so early in the e-commerce era that they weren't really expecting profitability quite yet, and so they were kind of letting him do his thing. But by late 2007, just a few years later, Etsy was running out of money. Fortunately, It went back, it got some more VC money, this time 27 million in investor funding. That happened in January of 2008. That's a ton of money, but Etsy was also valued at $90 million at this point. This round of funding was led by Jim Breyer, a venture capitalist and board member at Facebook and Walmart. Leading this round of funding earned him a seat on the board of Etsy. So this is one of the first times we're getting a big business guy in here. You got to wonder, how are all of Rob Kalin's wild ideas around community and education going to pan out? Well, this marked a major shift in the strategy and operations of Etsy. And, you know, sellers were not thrilled about the Walmart connection, And that's interesting to call out because for those of you who are really young or perhaps have just forgotten because there are so many things to be upset about, in 2008, we weren't living in the depressing, frightening world of Amazon. So Walmart was the most evil company anyone could think of. And to be fair, sometimes I get angry that Amazon has made people forget just how terrible Walmart is for both small businesses and workers all over the world. They're still just as bad as Amazon. But back then, people were just like, wait, Walmart and Etsy intersecting? How how is this possible? How could someone on the board at Walmart also be on the board at Etsy? Sellers were nervous. What would this mean for the community that Etsy had created and nurtured? Because nothing was more the antithesis of community than Walmart. Which was literally just decimating small businesses all across the United States, like gutting the old downtowns of all of these small towns, like just empty main streets and everybody going out to Walmart at the edge of town now. Like this, this was the exact polar opposite of what Etsy was. To quote Vox writer Caitlin Tiffany, suddenly a better life for crafters could not be the company's only goal. It also had to make serious money for some people who are pretty serious about their money. This was a big turning point. And oh the changes for Etsy just keep coming and coming. Rob Kalin, the founder, is pushed out of the company in 2011. In 2012, the company becomes a certified B Corp. That's a good thing. In 2013, the company begins to allow manufactured products, meaning not all made by one individual, to be sold on the platform. So a sense of the idea here was, you are an artist, you screen print t-shirts. Maybe now instead of you doing it yourself one by one, you pay someone to do it, right? Or you make clothing or you make jewelry and you outsource some of that or all of that production. The idea, at least in the beginning, as it was presented by Etsy, was that this would actually allow small businesses to grow, to get over that hump, that very low ceiling that exists on your business if everything you sell is made by you. I can see that and it seems fair, but what happens instead is that resellers begin to flood the site. And I'm gonna take a moment here, we're gonna touch on this in our conversation as well. When we talk about resellers in this episode and next week's episode, we are not talking about secondhand resellers, which is normally what we're talking about around here at Close Horse, right? We're talking about people who are buying things wholesale and selling them on Etsy, a place that is ostensibly handmade and vintage items. Right now, of course, everything is made by a human, right? But we're talking like made by makers and that's not what these resellers are. Like they're buying mass-produced stuff and selling it. Brand new mass-produced stuff is flooding into Etsy very, very fast. And honestly... It's not great, it's not great for anyone. A lot of long time sellers begin to leave the platform. Why would Etsy let this happen or make this decision, I guess? Well, ultimately it goes back to that VC money and having a very different presence on the board and at the top of the company. Etsy had to allow the inclusion of manufactured products because they had hit a ceiling in terms of sellers and potential customers, and frankly, sales. Investors wanted a return on their investment, which means they want exponential growth and they want maximum profitability. And it just, there weren't more people that Etsy could bring in who were makers, right? And makers could only make so much product to sell to so many customers, which meant that sales were not going to increase the way leadership wanted. Interestingly enough, investors would get a huge payday just a few years later in 2015 when Etsy becomes a publicly traded company. In their press release, they say, Etsy's strength as a business and community comes from its uniqueness in the world and we intend to preserve it. We don't believe that people and profit are mutually exclusive. We believe that Etsy can be a model for other public companies by operating a values-driven and human-centered business while benefiting people. Financial success is important for the company because that is what allows us to reinvest in our platform and grow our business sustainably, just like the businesses who have a home on Etsy. When our sellers succeed, our business succeeds, which leads to value for our shareholders. This is the nice story. This is a story that I wanted to believe then. I still kind of want to believe it now, even though I know better, which is this idea that business can be viable and successful while also ethical, right? And I do believe this. I do not believe that Etsy was ever going to achieve that while also saying that it had to keep growing, that push for growth year over year over year. My very strong feeling is that if you own a small business and it's an ethical business, right, you will grow, you will grow continuously for quite a while. But there is a ceiling that you hit that is good because to surpass that ceiling, you have to, lose your values, right? You have to start making compromises that over time snowball until a few years later, you are so far from where you began and a lot of your integrity has been lost along the way in the name of growing that business. Etsy is a prime example of that phenomenon playing out, but it's not the only business out there who I've watched fall into the same trap, essentially. Now, going public puts even more pressure cuz now you've got shareholders. You don't even have just a few investors now that you need to make happy. You have shareholders and there are a lot of them, right? They want and it's always this, right? Constant growth year over year over year over year over year for the rest of time along with of course that maximum profitability. At the same time It's interesting that they went public in 2015 because they were having a lot of issues. More and more conversations were being had across the internet about the state of Etsy. At this point, it is full of knockoffs with more and more manufactured items on the site. And therefore, because there's so much of this mass-produced stuff on the site, There's very little transparency about the supply chain. There were lots of conversations happening about products being made with child labor and just like general human exploitation. This is back in 2015. Well, about a month after going public, Etsy stock prices tank because it's revealed that as many as 2 million items for sale on Etsy, that's about 5% of all the goods on the site, could be counterfeit or violate trademark laws. This is a big, this is a big legal issue. It's also a massive customer service issue because if you think you're buying one thing and you get it and it's a copy, and knockoff, you're never gonna come back, right? If customers don't come back, then Etsy doesn't show that growth year over year over year, right? If Etsy faces lawsuits, they lose money that affects that maximum profitability that they've promised. So yeah, this is bad. Furthermore... The rampant reselling and theft of intellectual property on Etsy, like literally makers having their stuff copied and sold on Etsy alongside them, it causes a surge of Etsy sellers to leave. They head off to create their own websites, they go on Shopify, big cartel, they move to eBay, they sell IRL, all kinds of stuff happens. This leads to a bunch of corporate drama and intrigue. You have to go listen to the Etsy-sodes for the full story, but I'll just say there's a massive shakeup in terms of leadership. New leadership continues to kind of not fix the reseller issue while also not delivering on other promises that they had been making to sellers for years, like better search functionality, seller support, because here's the thing, which we'll talk about in our conversation today Etsy gets it wrong and has for a really long time to them their customer are the people who come and buy things on the site but really their real customer as in where their actual revenue comes from are not those people it's the sellers without the sellers there's no revenue and they actually get their revenue directly out of the sellers pockets in the form of fees right so If there's anyone who should be getting customer service, it should be the sellers, but Etsy is not doing that. And so sellers are getting frustrated. It's harder and harder to get help from Etsy. Then in 2017, this is totally a push to make the company profitable, about 20% of the staff was laid off. And so Etsy employees circulated a petition asking Etsy to, quote, stand for more than just profits, saying, we believe these changes represent a move away from Etsy's mission and values. And we're feeling uncertain about what the future holds for us as Etsy employees and for Etsy's community of creative entrepreneurs. Also in 2017... Etsy loses its B Corp certification. They're kind of like, whatever, it just wasn't working for us. CEO Josh Silverman says that Etsy, quote, had the best of intentions, but wasn't great at tying that sales to impact. Being good doesn't cut the mustard. Wow. Talk about a massive shift away from where Etsy began, right? So much stuff happens next. There's a fee increase. There are advertising fees. There's pressure to offer free shipping to sort of match Amazon. In fact, Amazon starts its own space like Etsy for people to sell. The, the service that sellers receive continues to decline. People's accounts get yanked and frozen and no one knows why. And There's no one to talk to. We're going to talk about all of that and so much more today. But once again, I urge you to go listen to the Etsy Sodes for so many more details. Seriously, there's just so much more to this saga, and actually the more you know about where Etsy began and where it is now, the more heartbreaking it all, it all becomes. In fact, in our conversation that you're going to hear today, you know, my conversation with Christy and Chiara, one thing that really struck me, and I hope I'm not ruining this episode for you, is how Etsy has chosen to completely ignore the Indie Sellers Guild and their collective action they've been taking together. They refuse to really acknowledge it, to have conversations. Like, there was no sit-down meeting. And I can't help but think, like, that's that wouldn't fly in the early the early vision and reality of what etsy once was it's really really heartbreaking and yeah just another sad story of late stage capitalism right all right well now that we're all super depressed let's jump into my conversation with christy and chiara (laughs) All right. Well, I'm really excited to have both of you here today. So why don't you introduce yourselves to everyone?
2: My name is Christy Cassidy. I'm um, president of the Indie Sellers Guild, and I've been a seller on Etsy since 2006. Same year I started my business, I make gothic Victorian steampunk costumes. Ooh, I like that. I'm Chiara Lore. I'm
3: the Executive Director of the Indie Sellers Guild. I studied theater costume design in college and had a custom corsets and lingerie business on Etsy for a couple years that I um, took a break from when I had my son and then the pandemic. But I've always been uh, very interested in kind of labor rights, workers' rights. My husband's in a union, so I got involved right after the strike.
0: So, okay, I'm trying to decide where we should start because right now you are the in, the Indie Sellers Guild, right? But you got started with the Etsy strike, which you just referenced, which is how I – became aware of y'all. And it was around the time that I was working on these Etsy episodes that I put out. And so I was like, wow, I'm so glad someone's doing this because I, as an outsider, have seen this shift in Etsy. So why don't we start by talking about where and how the Etsy strike originated?
2: Yeah, so uh, that would, that would be me. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, um, the day of the feeing. So I, I've been on Etsy since the beginning. It was one of those things where, you know, you, you join a platform, you know, you're kind of putting all your eggs in, in one basket, but Etsy was great. It was really, really a great place to be for so long. And then it's just been things deteriorating, you know, it's says <laughs> anybody on the platform knows, you know, it's, it's, it's been yeah. a long, slow, pretty much for me, I started noticing the downturns in 2019, but then if I actually look back into the stuff, I can see it was just things that weren't affecting me yet before then. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like there's yeah. some specifics of my business that that didn't really, like making, you know, mostly high-end items, free shipping didn't really bother me all that much. But, but then, you know, I, thing after thing, and for me, the last straw was actually the Star Seller program, where they're going to just, like, micromanage my business but I knew it was something that I couldn't fight back on. But whenever that happened, I was like, it's only a matter of time until the next thing. The next thing that comes around, I'm going to fight back. And then yeah. the next thing was actually the fee increase and I wound up with a post on the Etsy seller subreddit that kind of went viral and got got people together and then whenever the Etsy strike was not actually started by me but the leader had to step back due to health problems and I was there and so so I stepped I stepped up. <laughs>
0: okay, there's a lot to unpack. First off, Explain it to me like I'm five. What was the Star Seller Program, just for anyone who doesn't know?
2: Oh, yeah. So, um, it's a little different now. That was actually one of the concessions we got out of the Etsy strike. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, so, the, when it started, it was, like, the most horribly designed way that Etsy could possibly come up with to micromanage all of their sellers. <laughs> it was... <laughs> Let's see. Uh, You in the last three months, um, you needed to have ninety-five percent of your uh, orders be five stars. And if you got a one-star review, it would count the same against your total as a as a four-star review. So it was like it was just horrible. That that was one of the things that they changed. It's now like just average ninety-five percent, which is a lot better because then you know you can get a couple four star reviews if you're getting enough orders and you'll be okay it still sucks though because if you're a small seller what happens is one like one spot of bad luck of somebody that's just can't be happy will cause you to lose that rating you know if if you're small enough
0: yeah yeah and i see those those kinds of reviews all the time on the etsy subreddit and so i wondered like was was etsy feeling as if like the sellers weren't doing a good job with customer service because
2: this feels so extreme. It's so it's, this is pure speculation, but I I believe that there was problems with the resellers that they had let into the plaque form ah. that, and they needed to do something to try and, you know, make sure that there was, you know, overall standards being met. And they just like applied because so the reviews was only one part of it. There, mm-hmm. There's three metrics. It's reviews uh, respond to all your messages within 24 hours or, or each message from a customer. It's like if, if they message you back, it doesn't count, you know, then you'd wind up with never ending message threads. So, yeah, there's actually three metrics that it's based on. It's not Mm -hmm. just reviews. The second metric is you need to respond to all of every message from a new customer within 24 hours. The issue we had with that is that... It would even count on holidays and weekends, so you you just could never take
0: any time off. Okay, so I have a question. So if you were on vacation or you were sick or God knows what crisis had come up in your life, you still were expected to respond to these messages.
2: The only way that you could get around it was in the beginning was by going in there and manually setting an "I'm going to be away." You re- needed to remember to do that every single Friday. Was that was how it was in the beginning? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> now they've got it to where you can set it's still not great because like they seem to like you can't set the timing to to where it covers all of the time like they forget that the last hour 30 minutes of the day exists if you go in there and play with it you'll see that it it doesn't actually work but Mm. (laughs) um but but it, it does let you set like Auto, you know, like auto replies for certain time periods. Now you can like you know set one that that is always there on the weekend. But yeah, that that was another one of the concessions from the Etsy strike was they they changed that to where you could you could set an auto reply on the weekend that was automatic.
0: Wow. Wow. This is wild. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the third metric for the Sparse system?
2: Yeah. So the third metric was shipping all of your orders on time. Now, if you, and it's so 95% actually, not all, but it, it winds up being all whenever you're a small seller. That's why I think of it that way. But mm-hmm. um, so um, the, uh, the thing with that is, if you've got stuff that's in stock, that's really easy. If, if you're just, just selling stuff that mm-hmm. you've already made or, you know, stuff that you've ordered from somewhere else, if you're not really right. supposed to be on that. Right.
0: Yeah. Interesting. So I'm starting to see where this is really coming from. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that was for me, that was the lot because it's like, that's what I do. I have this in- absolutely crazy labor intensive business where, you know, P- you know, if I get a whole bunch of orders all at once, I- I'm going to have to email a bunch of people and be like, are you okay with this late? I can refund your order if you can't have it late, you know, but it was mm-hmm. like, suddenly I wasn't able to do this anymore. I wasn't able to actually run my business the way how I need to run my business mm-hmm. with the fact that I'm one person hand making all this stuff. Yeah. It's wild.
3: So another thing kind of and this might be jumping, you know, a little further ahead in the story. But another thing about like why did they put this star seller program in place? Um, and Christy knows the details of this more. But there's something kind of in this process you've talked about where platforms start off great for kind of, especially like the sellers using them, the like original customers, the seller customers, like you talked about, and then slowly, you know, the pressure from that venture capital money slowly get worse and worse. They, um, develop what, um, Cory Doctorow calls uh, anti-competition flywheels. Is that right, Christy? Yes. Yep. Yep. Anti-competitive flywheel. Anti-competitive flywheels. And it's basically um, policies that they put in place that make them more attractive to buyers that a smaller competitor would not be able to do. So, like a smaller marketplace trying to compete can't ask all their sellers to meet those kind of metrics, but it makes buyers find Etsy more attractive, more trustworthy. Oh, if I shop star seller, I'm kind of guaranteed better uh, you know, customer service, more likely to, you know, get what I want, et cetera. And where it ties back into what's going on right now is that being a star seller is one of the reasons your account won't be put in a reserve on Etsy. But if you lose it, you can get put in a reserve immediately.
0: It feels so unfair. I mean, obviously that's what we're getting at here, right? Like it feels really unfair specifically to makers, I would say, but just like micro single person businesses in whole because suddenly you have to be available all the time. And if you're a maker, you have to execute on timelines that might not be reasonable so I'm assuming that this is where the strike originated.
2: Yes, yes. And with the fee increase also, there was the email that they sent out. They It was just kind of a, a it was worded in the worst way possible. Let me put it that way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised, which when you think about it, think about how many people got to work on that email. It could have, it could have been great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: And they sent one out to their investors at the same time. And we know how to look this stuff up on the internet. It was, you know, hey, look, we made record profits. We ended the year in $1.1 billion of cash and cash equivalents. And we bought multiple competitors. And isn't this great? Oh, and to make sure that we can keep this crazy momentum going forward, we're raising our seller fees. That was what the investor report said.
0: Oh my god, that makes me so angry. (laughs) I mean, I'm not surprised, right? Like, I'm not surprised at all. But I did notice that it just seemed like that was the year that they were buying up like Depop and Reverb and all kinds of other platforms. And it seemed like I was like, where is Etsy getting all this money?
2: Yeah, they they did absolutely uh, the bonkers sales over the pandemic. It was like every, because Etsy was the place where everybody was going to get masks whenever masks didn't exist yet. Oh, I yeah. didn't even
0: think of that. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, And people are also like, they're at home and they're like bored, right? And they can't go shopping. So Etsy has everything ever on it at this point. So I can understand that.
2: And there were also a ton of people who were out of work and started new Etsy businesses Mm, at that time.
0: Yep. Yep. Well, Etsy always sells this, this, it's a little bit of an illusion that you can very easily just, you know, start your own business and make a living selling on Etsy. And it's, it's not that simple, right? Yes. yes. (laughs) So, okay. They send out these bad, this bad email with all this bad stuff. And you do a post on Reddit that kind of goes viral about about this. So this is where the strike begins?
2: Yes. Yep. Yeah. It was. Uh, so someone, the person who was organizing, the original organizer of the Etsy strike commented on my post and said, hey... we're we're planning a strike in r slash etsy strike come join us and (laughs) the so the crazy thing that happened too so the mods of r slash etsy sellers were shutting down all the posts that anybody was doing about the fee increase and redirecting them into a mega thread that was made by like someone who it 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 was not it was like they were trying to to kind of quell the outrage and and just get everyone Mm. come talk about it here you know don't talk yeah. about it elsewhere. For some reason, though, they didn't shut down my post. And I think it was because mostly I was talking about just how much all the ways that the platform had degraded over the years. And mm-hmm. just like the, that the fee increase was the final straw. Well, then I was able to go in and edit my post and tell everybody that read it to come to the r slash Etsy strike subreddit so that we could start talking about this. And because my post didn't get shut down, it worked really well to actually get people in in that subreddit who were interested in organizing <laughs>
0: I mean I feel like I've read your post like it sounds so familiar to me and that's how I knew about the Etsy strike subreddit. So ultimately like can you explain what the Etsy strike was
2: and then we can talk about like what came out of it? Yes, so it was uh actually eight not a, I always say a week but it was actually 8 days. It was like that was the numbers that got written down and none of us noticed that it was 8 days instead of a week, but <laughs>
0: I do that all the time with the calendar. Yeah. I
2: get it. <laughs> so yeah, April 11th to 18th, 2022, um, we were just calling for everybody, put your shop in vacation mode, or if you can't afford to do that, because, you know, we understand where everybody's from, um, the, the or, you know, we, we understand how it you know, it's really hard to make it as an Etsy seller. If you can't afford to put your shop in vacation mode, just change images to, you know, I support the strike or whatever. You know, we were having everybody, you know, come in however you can stand to, you know, however you can support and, you know, just tell Etsy this is not okay. We picked five Mm -hmm. demands that were important to us. Um, The first one was the fee increase and um, it was the fee increase it was um, off-site ads which is the policy where basically they force us to foot their advertising bills <laughs> as an additional fee that's tacked on to all of our other stuff <laughs> cool. <Great. Yes>. yeah. <laughs> um, the th- it was also um, like better support because there were cases where AI bots were shutting down people's shops and they weren't yes. able to, to do anything about it because it was just getting the run around um, mm-hmm. and uh, oh, so Star seller was the one of them and ooh, I'm like I might have to actually look this up to remember. There's one more. There's one more demand that I'm forgetting. Uh, everyone opt out. Yeah, oh my goodness, I have. I've completely forgotten the final demand. <laughs> so there was
3: fee increase, resellers, support, star seller, and off site ads. Resellers! I forgot the most important one. Okay, And just as I, I just like to
0: jump in here, when we talk about resellers here, we're not talking about people buying second, selling secondhand cl- stuff like oh,
2: no. vintage. Sellers, oh, no. Right. Oh, no. So right. resellers is actually a word that Etsy coined. That's why we wind up always using that. They Etsy does not allow resellers on their platform, which is people buying things that are made in a factory, pretending like they handmade them themselves but yeah, and selling them. They
0: definitely do that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just to be clear, because I was telling you before we started recording how I, you know, I, I did a post about Timu last week and how like it's basically Etsy. If it were just instead of makers and vintage sellers, it was factories in China. And so they're just listing on the platform in the same way and Timu takes a cut and I'm sure charges them for advertising and all kinds of other stuff, but it is what Etsy would call resellers, right? And people were like, oh, I always, people are always selling Timu stuff on Etsy. And I said, no, that's not people selling Timu stuff. That's the same factories and suppliers that sell on Timu, these Chinese factories and suppliers who are mass producing things selling on Etsy as well. You know, like they are using the platform in the same way.
2: Yes. Yes, you have that. But on Etsy, you also have people who are just flat out pretending to hand make their stuff that they're buying stuff Um, in factories. it's very obvious. So yes, it's very (laughs)
0: obvious. (laughs) So you all are getting together. How many Etsy businesses ended up striking?
2: So we believe so. So the. The, the, where this gets a little bit complicated, so it was about 29,000 people who had signed wow. our petition, checked the I'm a seller box and said, we're okay with you sending us emails. So okay. the actual number is a little bit more than that, but we, we can't be sure by how much because we only we only have that. That's the number we have. <laughs> right,
0: right. And then what happened? Like, Do you know, I mean, I'm assuming Etsy would have lost
2: sales that week. Do you know how much? And so it, it's really hard to like attribute, you know, when there was a, a downtick of, I want to say it was like in the millions of listings, Cindy Lou, who too did, um, kept track of it and did, did a, did a series of, of, of posts about the, that like numbered. And it, it I want to say it was like 90 million listings went dark or something like that. But I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. The other thing, too, is that um, because Etsy themselves, they report
3: like by um, quarter. And so the quarter that had the Etsy strike and the quarter following where were two of the only quarters where the number of Etsy sellers dropped in the history of the company. So, yeah, so not by a ton, but if you look at the graph and I can definitely like. I don't have it up this second, but we know where to find that information. I've got the link. Um, You can see this, like, smooth growth and then a big, a fast growth during the pandemic. And then it actually, like, levels off or dips a little right in, like, second quarter 2022, third quarter 2022 um, around the strike.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So they definitely felt the impact, and I'm sure investors saw the impact, were were worried about the impact. So what happened next? Because Etsy did make some concessions here, but how did that happen? Did they talk to any of you?
2: Oh, no. Oh, no. It was more like it it was more like they they we we call it a concession. We fully claim it because they changed the exact things we talked about over and over again in in various news interviews. But um, Mm. they did not talk to any of us personally. We've we've actually we we sent the petition to them. We had all of our (laughs) petitionees write letters and send them in via snail mail. We did we did all sorts of things to try to get Etsy to talk to us and etsy has always just ignored us but then quietly done things to address the things that we're talking about you know in in a few months so (laughs) that's so
0: disappointing because imagine what a good even just a good pr move it would have been to actually sit down with all y'all like fly you to new york to the office and talk um it would have looked really good for them and on top of that like Imagine how much more meaningful and personal that would have been, especially because Etsy in the beginning, I mean, you all know, was all about like fostering this community of makers building small businesses, right? And now to just have no in person or, I mean, any personal contact with you all in the midst of this big thing is just mind blowing to me because I've never heard of any other strike where the leaders of the strike were not sitting down at a table. With the company they were striking. I just can't believe it. I'm so disappointed to hear that.
3: Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right?
0: It's like really. I mean, (gasps) I just think it's really. It was really foolish of them, honestly. And shows where their priorities are.
2: Are you talking about the blades of grass quote? That was a Wall Street Journal interview. And I have the quote memorized because I've quoted it so many times. This was so this was on April 12th, the second day of the strike in a Wall Street Journal interview. Um, Josh Silverman said that's the CEO of Etsy. Each of our sellers is a blade of grass in a tornado. There's someone you haven't heard of.
0: (gasps) So they just don't care.
2: Their attitude seems to be
3: that there's always more Etsy sellers out there, so they don't need to try and create a good rapport with the ones they currently have. Um, Or there's so many that there's like each time that an issue comes up, like with the strike, like with the reserves issue this summer, they're very quick to say, oh, it was only it affected less than 2% of active sellers. It affected less than 1% of active sellers. But that's very misleading for a couple reasons. One, to be an active seller uh, or to count in that active seller number, all you have to do is have had one kind of transaction on the site in the past year. And that can include like buying a single piece of postage, buying, uh, having Etsy charge you a listing fee, right? The smallest thing will make you count wow. as an active okay. seller. So obviously most of the people counting as active sellers are not necessarily people running active small businesses, right? So it's misleading for that way. Oh, it's only 1% of active sellers. Okay. But how many is it of people with active small businesses, really not even making a full-time money, but just consistent money on Etsy, consistently posting things, consistently selling things. And two, Etsy's got, I think, 6 million sellers was the last report. It was, I believe, 5 million um, for the last year. Again, I can look up those numbers. But regardless, if you check for 1% or 2%, it's like over 100,000 sellers, right? It's not a small number, even if it's a small percentage. So, you know, a, a small percentage of Etsy sellers affected is still a large actual number of people whose lives and financial security is impacted by these decisions.
0: The kind of conclusion I came to after working on that Etsy series as an outsider is that, Etsy has it fundamentally wrong in terms of how they view their sellers versus the people who come in and buy stuff. They're really focused on getting customers in to spend their money, right? But what they don't, and they look at the sellers as like a commodity right? Like, that's why they're like, this is how many active sellers we have. Like, it's a bragging point, but they're looking at the sellers almost as the product and then the customers buying from the sellers as the customers. But what they're not realizing is that the sellers themselves are the customers, right? And if they support them, then they will make more money as those businesses can grow and support more shoppers, you know? And I, I found, I I think in the beginning, Etsy really did focus on the sellers, right. And understand what a, precious resource they were and try to do, treat them as like important customers and support them. But over time, they were like, no, it's about getting shoppers in here, right? Like that's where we're going to focus and we're going to put in place these policies to ensure that the shoppers are never unhappy, that the shoppers who we're luring in who are more like Amazon shoppers are having a similar experience to when they shop on Amazon. And we're going to start neglecting things like the service and support. That our real customers, the sellers, need. Like the whole thing with people's accounts being deactivated and not being able to get support, they should be like the front, like at the top of the customer service list every day, right? Shoppers can work it out. Shoppers can work stuff out with the people selling to them. And if it's not working, then escalate it. But I just feel like Etsy has lost its view, and it makes sense, right? It's a totally different company now with totally different leadership. It's lost its view
3: of who's important here, what the precious resource really is. Yeah, I agree. And I think, like you pointed out, there's there's kind of two ways you could go for growth with this kind of a platform. You can either prioritize the seller's Having more sales and higher price point sales because they take a percentage, right? So either way, number of sales or higher price point, or you can focus on more sellers and more items available. And they clearly went that second direction to the you know kind of detriment of most sellers on the platform.
0: Absolutely, and I think I think that that is probably one of the reasons the founder Rob Kalin was eventually pushed out because he he definitely had. A, a different mindset about this, and then bringing in CEOs who are from like big, like retailers and whatnot, and big brands. Like they are coming in with that like our goal is to sell as much stuff as possible mindset, and it's just going to change what the business is and the values of it. I think there's been a huge shift in the values of Etsy.
3: Well, and the other thing I found fascinating listening to your podcast, because right after the strike, so I saw the news about the strike and I wasn't in, they had a discord server at that point. I didn't get involved in there, but I saw it and was like, that's great. I'm going to sign the petition. My shop was already on vacation (laughs) mode. So I just left it. And then (laughs) I was like, I'm participating. Not really. Um, And then I saw a news article that Christy did an interview for where she said we're trying to build a union for Etsy sellers. And I like I said, my husband's in the he's in the IBEW. Um, he does a lot for the political action committee for his local. So we we talk about labor politics a lot for fun because we're <laughs> those people. Um and so I saw Etsy sellers union and was like, that is the combo of my two things. I am interested and immediately like hit up Christy on like every place that I could find her contact information, asking how I could help. I said, I think I sent her an Etsy message and, <laughs> and a Facebook message and an email. <laughs> and so she was like, she's like, Oh, here's our discord join. And at first I was just kind of, you know, hanging out, participating in conversation, but then I joined the thread for um, uh, talking about how to, like, mm-hmm. make it into a union and just kind of, like, kept showing up and asking lots of questions and, uh, and, like, having suggestions and being like, oh, I'll do that. And eventually they're like, do you want to just be in the core team meeting because you're you keep having lots of ideas and being able to do a lot of the things. So like, just come join us. <laughs> That's um, awesome. Yeah. It was very cool to start from like, oh, I'm just here to support it to like get all the way into like, oh, I'm helping, you know, really decide how this is going to go. Um, but two of the things we heard constantly in the beginning were what you said of like, oh, Etsy's lost its way. It used to be so much better. And two why don't we start our own Etsy? Let's just all get together and start our own Etsy. And what I found so interesting about your history of Etsy is that if you really dig into it, like the history of Etsy shows why like neither of those questions is really like complete, I guess, because Mm -hmm. like, Oh, Etsy was so great in the beginning. Well, it was certainly a different, had different values. It was much more Mm -hmm. seller-focused, like you said, but they never had good customer service, Mm -hmm. um, like you talked about. And they weren't turning a profit, which (laughs) if your goal is to start a for-profit company, is a problem, Mm -hmm, (laughs) right? mm -hmm, So then you have, which doesn't mean... You know, you can't create something similar to the original Etsy and have it be successful. It means you different need a different metric of success. And there's some other right. very interesting, uh, there's some other great uh, companies out there working on like more co-op style marketplaces and things like that, which goes into that second question of, well, let's just all get together and start our own Etsy. And everyone's always asking us like, why aren't you starting your own Etsy? Well, because... To get Etsy going took tens of millions of dollars of venture capital. Right. right. And we're working for free with like the lowest budget you can imagine right now. (laughs) So that's why we're not just starting our own Etsy. And that's why that's not necessarily like the question to ask. You can start your own marketplace and that's great. And there's pros and cons to that. But starting actual Etsy competitor is like a way bigger thing than people seem to realize on first look.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. You know, I was saying to Christy earlier before we started recording that one of my last jobs before the pandemic was working for a brand new rental platform, which meant it had to be coded and built from the ground up. Well, there's like 20 engineers working on that for like two years, you know, to create the technological infrastructure. So imagine Etsy just building an Etsy right now. Like, The amount of people you'd have to hire, the money you would need to do it, and the time it would take. And I would say that for a lot of sellers— on Etsy, who rely on that income, they can't say, oh, I'm going to take like a time out for two years and wait for that platform.
2: And then, and then who knows how long, like it took about six years for Etsy to grow to the point where I was, felt like I was able to earn a living on it. So who knows how long it would take to grow a competitor to where your sellers can earn a living, you know?
0: Right. And the other concern that I would have is that Etsy would get, get, get some lawyers involved. I, I feel like there's no way that Etsy would be like, oh, cool. That's great. You know what would happen is either Etsy would take you out of court pretty fast, or they would try to buy you because they've been buying their competitors for years.
2: Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> Yep. Yeah. yeah one of the th- one of the things that they did with some of those pandemic profits was buy a platform called Lo Seven, which was a Brazilian handmade marketplace. <sighs>
0: Yeah, I mean, that's that's what they've been doing. Like I said, when I started working on the Etsy episodes, I had no idea what I was in for. And I was like, oh, my God, like, it's all all the hits of like, capitalism, really. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I was telling you before we started that Etsy and its evolution or evolution, depending on how you look at it, is not dissimilar to the way fast fashion has changed, the way clothes clothes are sold to us, or even how startups that were that began around that time of Etsy, like Modcloth, for example, how they changed over time and succeeded and or failed, right? Because you needed a lot of money to sell on the internet and grow, right? And so when you bring in that VC money, the expectation is that you're going to grow exponentially every single year and you're going to become profitable. As fast as possible. And I see that Etsy hit a wall on those promises and was like, okay, now we're gonna let all these other people in to sell here too.
2: Yeah, and it's like they could start by the you know, like the first change was would have been like if you go all the way back to the beginning, we're talking probably 2012 whenever they decided to let people use production partners and that was probably the only change that they could really make that would let a whole bunch of new people come in that wouldn't be completely anti, you know, because like, you know, people using a, a designer using a production partner is still, I believe, with in the spirit of Etsy. I know not everyone agrees with me on that, but like, you know, sometimes, you know, it's not practical to hand make everything from scratch. <laughs> right, so, by yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And and so that, that was like, really, that was the only change that they could make that would keep allowing that exponential growth. Once they had done that, they, they kind of ran up against a wall. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then it was like, I feel like they were like, okay, we're going to try to lure in the Amazon shopper. So we're going to get, we're going to, you know, prioritize free shipping, fast shipping, customer service that would be in line with Amazon expectations, right? And I think it was around that time too that Amazon I don't know if they're still doing this, but they tried to do their own Etsy. I don't know if, if you know anybody. Oh, yes. Amazon
2: Handmade still exists. The crazy really? thing is Amazon Handmade used to be like the way, 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 way more expensive than Etsy option for people. Now mm. it's actually cheaper in because Etsy fees have increased so much. If you have a wow, smaller ticket item, Amazon Handmade is cheaper now.
0: I'm going to tell you that I have in the past, I haven't worked on anything like this for a while, but I have worked with clients in the past to build their Amazon storefront or keep their business rolling there. And uh, the fees for are, are just like egregious. Like, I don't know how, you know, there are so many brands that literally only sell on Amazon. They're like weird brands, but you know, like they only sell there. And I'm like, how do they make any money? They must just have to sell like 100,000 units every year or something because the like most sellers on the Amazon platform make very little money off of each item they sell so for if If Etsy is more expensive than that, that is just so depressing
2: to me. Well, now, clarification, Amazon Handmade is cheaper than Amazon Regular. Okay. With with regular Amazon, there's like a bunch of fees for regular Amazon that they waive for Handmade sellers, which honestly, that could be temporary because I don't think they've been that successful at at stealing enough of Etsy's market Uh cap to up the fees yet. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's how it always goes when they're not successful enough about stealing people they will come up with the next next way <laughs> let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep close horse going via their generous patreon support Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed, vintage, or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift Clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, Vino Vintage, based just outside of L.A. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycled garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person. But they also have a website, so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at Gabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at Gabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpage life and style. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing accessories and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy, located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Okay, so let's talk about like what is the Indie Sellers Guild and what are you working on?
3: So um honestly, we've been um not I mean, we have been making it up as we go, but more in the sense of figuring out with the goal of kind of of being like a union, being a labor organization for sellers of handmade, vintage, unique and craft supply goods. That's our that's our mission. And kind of what exactly that looks like was always a little nebulous because there aren't unions for people, independence small businesses that sell on platforms, right? They're not counted as employees. So it's a it's new terrain. So the exact form that's taken has kind of shifted over the last year as we've responded to like the clear needs of the situation. So right now we're kind of primarily a like out like an advocacy and watchdog organization have been the the efforts that we've been doing the most and have seen the most needed. So we do petitions and reach out to journalists when things arise, like uh, with the Etsy payment reserve policy this summer, that was a really big one that we were working on. Um, then we also have um, some like research, like a research project going to find out what um handmade and vintage and craft goods sellers really need from an online marketplace to uh, sell their products and run their business because it hasn't actually really been researched from the perspective of the the sellers or even the buyers it's mostly researched from either like an economist perspective or like the business executives perspective like the company itself but not the people using it. So, (laughs) right? Like, why would we ask the people who are actually here? Um, I know. Once again, it's like, it's like they're looking at the wrong people. You know what I mean? And that isn't even Etsy. That's like academic research has failed to think through, like, you know, if we're going to investigate and research these marketplaces, we should really look at it from like who's on there every day doing stuff, um, not just who owns the marketplace. And then we're going to use that research to create a program to like support and foster new marketplaces, which I'm very excited about, but that should be like that's its whole own little spiel. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so we're kind of, Part of what I've realized over the last year is that, you know, when that question came up of, are we going to do another, are we going to make our own Etsy? Mm -hmm. Are we going to make a new marketplace? There's a lot of marketplaces out there. They're just small and don't have enough traffic yet, or they're too niche. Like they're for a specific area or for a specific type Mm -hmm. of product. And so we realized that, you know, the, the, rather than trying to like reinvent the wheel and do our own marketplace, we would rather put our resources into supporting and, uh, kind of gathering the existing ones. Um, similarly, when we started out, we were doing a lot of like, Oh, we can do like business education and support for, um, Etsy sellers and how to run your Etsy shop. Well, a lot of that exists too. Um, Not Mm -hmm. And there's not just like coaches, but like nonprofits and trade organizations for crafters and things. And so right now we're ending up doing a lot more kind of activism work, a lot of kind of finding those other groups and pulling them together and getting their support on issues that affect all sellers and then finding ways to support them with what we do. Uh, So that's kind of the broad picture, and then I can get into, like, our specific projects right now as well.
0: Yeah, let's talk about what you're working on specifically right now.
3: Okay, Uh, so first off is that uh, Marketplace uh, Research Study, which um, has been a really fun kind of long-term project where it's a research study done in collaboration with Samantha Close, who is a professor at DePaul University and has studied the crafting industry for, I think, like a decade. Um, and it came about in a really nice organic way in that we said, we want to find out what sellers and customers really need from a marketplace. And she said, well, I do research in this area. I can help you make a real research study. (laughs) So rather than like an Academic researcher coming into a community and saying, "I want to do this research. Will you collaborate with me?" It was actually us saying, "We need this information," and her saying, "Well, I can. I know how to do research. I can work with you to do that." Um, we started with like a workshop to find the kind of the key areas of importance, and then we did an open-ended survey where people just wrote in their answers, um, and like 200 people responded to that. And now we have a multiple-choice survey. Takes about 20 minutes. All the answers are collected anonymously. Uh, It's all, like I said, multiple choice, ranked choice. And we've gotten almost a thousand responses to that so far. And I'm hoping to get even more to really have a broad uh, sample of, you know, creative indie sellers. So uh, that survey is live. We hope people will go take it. Like I said, it doesn't take very long and it um, is a, a great way to make your voice heard as a creative indie seller or someone who just loves handmade and vintage goods and wants to shop from those small businesses.
0: You know, once again, like you're you're totally right. Like the research in this kind of area is always in, on the consumer, right? Not the maker. Right. And it, I think if we are going to see a shift in our economy to a smaller economy, meaning more small business focused,
3: we need to understand how that works. Yeah. And that we don't, <laughs> right? Because no one's asked them, <laughs> um, and so that's where we're. Um, so the the research is actually the first step in a uh, kind of our big, grand, long term goal, which is to create a marketplace accreditation program, and we'll probably expand it Ooh. to also include like nonprofits for sellers or trade organizations. But the idea would be that. Um, You know, uh, there's no way for us to, like, the way a union would have a contract with an employer, there's no real way for us to do that and negotiate that in a traditional way. But what we can Mm -hmm. do is use this research to set a standard for, like, the terms of service that would be, uh, like— A gold standard terms of service. Like, this is what sellers would really love to see from a platform. This is what they consider to be a good platform that treats their sellers well. And then we can Mm -hmm. go to platforms and essentially just kind of compare what they offer and how they treat their sellers against what this gold standard that comes from this research on what sellers say they want. And then like a credit and give them scores and rankings in different areas based on that. And the idea would be that every year we recheck on them. And if a marketplace, if they change their terms, if they, we start getting reports from sellers that, you know, there's problems and we investigate they can lose that accreditation as a way of saying oh we're withdrawing you know our support from you we're no longer saying that you're a good marketplace for sellers to use to give that kind of collective bargaining power that unions have in this other different digital uh workplace i mean
0: i love this this needs to happen because there really isn't any regulation of these kinds of platforms in terms of how they serve or treat the sellers. You know, it's always like, like, I'm sure if, you buy something from one of those platforms and you get scammed, you could like go to the Better Business Bureau. So there's, there's protection for the shoppers, you know, perhaps, but that's it. That's it. And I think, you know, once again, these are, we're talking about like really like makers are a really valuable resource.
3: Yes. (laughs) And that's what we found time and time again, when we investigate like legal recourse, when issues come up is that sellers are employees and they're not consumers they're technically, it's technically a business-to-business relationship, which implies a kind of parity and equality that is just mm-hmm. completely unfounded. If you're talking about Christy, who makes beautiful things in her home, and Etsy, which is valued at billions of dollars, right? But somehow right. they're both businesses having a business-to-business relationship with a contract. Um, yeah, yeah. And then Christy had an even bigger, loftier goal for that program where she wants to eventually, as resources allow, uh, build, uh, probably hire someone to build a open source search engine that would search just our accredited marketplaces so that you can go to one website and search and know that the only things that are kind of pop up are from marketplaces that have been vetted for like making sure the only people selling on the platform are the people supposed to be vet- selling on the platform, making sure they don't screw over their sellers, making sure, um, you know, the fees aren't exorbitant, et cetera. And that way, these kind of more niche marketplaces can, we can help them be found, right? Because they'll be like, there'll be a broader search area, search engine, which is really one of the reasons Etsy has maintained the monopoly, right? Because you just go to one place and you search all the things. And Mm -hmm. so this would be a way to have something similar, but without having to rebuild Etsy itself.
0: I love this vision of the future and making this better because for all my frustration with Etsy and criticism of it, I don't, want this type of platform to go away. And I worry that if Etsy at some point failed, which is hard for me to imagine, it's so big right now, but you never know, I wouldn't want people to turn back and say, okay, well, we're never going to do something like that again. It's just about making it better, you know, like this version
3: better. Exactly. Um, So yeah, for sure. That's kind of our, one of our big things big long-term goals but that's and that's kind of in the avenue of like options besides etsy but we still do a lot of work you know on etsy itself on um keeping up with the changes they make on putting pressure on them to to change policies that are really harmful to sellers Mm -hmm. and so we have two other projects that kind of fall in that realm uh one of them is we are supporting the uh COOL Online Act, COOL stands for Country of Origin Labeling Online Act, which is a bill sponsored by Senator Baldwin of Wisconsin. And it takes the laws we have in the U.S. for shopping in person, where when you buy something, you can pick it up and see a made-in label if it was made Mm -hmm. outside the U.S. There is currently nothing requiring any kind of retailer to provide that country of origin information for shopping online because the law that requires that is i believe the 1930 tariff act like it's from so long before the internet right and it's never been updated appropriately so it's a pretty straightforward bill it just says if there's that tag on it and says it's made outside the u.s put that on your website right it's basically all it's doing We're really excited about the bill because it will really, we're hoping it will really help to spot the dishonest resellers. So not people who are just using production partners. They design it. They have it you know, manufactured somewhere else and they provide that information. Cause you're on Etsy. You're mm-hmm. supposed to provide the information on your production partners, but the people who are being dishonest about it, they're buying mass produced items that they had no part in the creation mm-hmm. of, and then saying it's handmade and reselling it on Etsy. Now that will actually be a civil violation that you can report to the FTC. If this bill is passed into law. Um, So it's, you know, one small step, but it actually sets some kind of precedent for these rules and combating this issue. It's specifically designed uh, to address that problem. Uh, Senator Baldwin got uh, involved and interested on it after she bought a painting that someone said was handmade and then found it all over the internet. It's just a mass-produced piece. And I heard from her, you know, constituents that do made-in-Wisconsin items that they're getting undercut Mm -hmm. by people reselling mass-produced items as handmade, like being dishonest about the origin of the items. So we're really, really excited to support that legislation. We already wrote a letter of support, and we were able to use some of that research from that study we've been working on to show, oh, sellers really do want this to help get the bill passed through committee. It passed mm-hmm. this Commerce Committee back the end of July and now Senate, the Senate has reconvened and so we'll be working with uh, the Senator's office again on how to support it and get it uh, passed through the Senate. Um, but it's going to be a fight because Etsy and eBay and others are lobbying really hard against it.
0: <laughs> Uh, No surprise, surprise because that would like
3: change things in a major way for,
0: like just the cost, like imagine as a customer, I mean, I was telling you that I think to me, and probably because I just like live and work in this space that uh, it's really obvious to me, the stuff that isn't uh, being, you know, handmade (laughs) on, on Etsy, but for a lot of customers, it's not that simple. And imagine if you went on there and it said
3: made in China. Yep. How wild would that be? Yeah. If it actually said, or at the very least, if you went on there and it said made in the U.S. and you bought it and it said, like, the, right on the bottom of the product made into it, it says, you know, made wherever, you'd have, you know, more options. There'd have to be some method for, like, getting a refund when you can file a complaint. Like, there would be something to to do to some standard, right? So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah that's uh one project and it's been it's been it was amazing that (laughs) christy will tell you we spent like a week just like being freaking out excited because i see an email in our inbox that and i'm like oh my gosh this says from senator's office so i'm like (laughs) texting christy i'm like christy you got an email in the joint inbox
2: from a senator go answer right now i'm dying of curiosity (laughs) Ah, and mm-hmm. um, and and it was really funny because he contacted me on Etsy, but didn't want to say like first found because he found us because of so it was um uh, Brian from Senator Tammy's her her executive legislative director was mm-hmm. was the person who who we've been talking to and so he found he first contacted me on Etsy and it was just this super uh, <laughs> uh cryptic I had no idea just Hi, are you the president of the Indie Sellers Guild? I have something I want to talk to you about. Uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, then also found the inbox, and it was like, yes, let's not talk about this on Etsy. The email is a much better location. <laughs> Seriously.
0: Yeah, wow. You know, so what's interesting about this is like from, uh, Like, as a buyer, right, and working in, like, you know, for larger retailers, right, anything that we imported into the country that we bought to sell at retail, whether it was something that we had designed and developed ourselves or something we bought from another brand, it had to have a country of origin label sewn into it in order to be allowed into the country, right? So, what you know, something I've been like obsessing over and I'm actually working on an episode where this is part of the conversation, which will be out by the time people listen to this episode, is how a lot of these resellers, if you will, I hate using that term because I don't want people to think I'm talking about Secondhand resellers, but like resellers by Etsy's viewpoint, how they are skirting this issue because a lot of them are doing drop shipping. Right, it's selling direct; it's shipping directly from China to the customer. My sister bought a sweatshirt, and that's how it came to her. She bought it on Etsy. Um, is they are taking advantage of this loophole called de minimis, which is any package that ships into the United States to a customer that is worth eight hundred dollars or less in retail value is not in any way held to any of these import regulations, meaning that it doesn't have to have a country of origin label. It doesn't have to be inspected for safety or intellectual property infringement. It just slides right in. And on top of that, the seller, the original, whoever shipped it over here, doesn't have to pay any customs or duties on it. And so we've seen, like, you know, Shein is an example of a company that's been able to really just run, run like the wind by stealing all of this like intellectual property from artists and designers alike. And they don't get caught because customs and border enforcement isn't looking at these packages when they come in. They just get diverted and shipped off to the customer, right? And the same thing with Timu and these drop shippers that are just like all over the internet on every platform. You brought up eBay for sure. Same thing happening on eBay, right? And it's a highly profitable business because you don't have to be kind of like legally accountable to anyone. And how are we supposed to compete? How are makers supposed to compete with that
3: kind of stuff? Right. And that's, I think, where, you know, legislation like this, that at least helps the people that are not looking for that, find the other mm-hmm. stuff, right? Because it ends up being like, you can't compete with price by that at all. What. Well, no, so you have no. to then. You're really selling to the people that don't want that, right? They're looking for something right. else, and the problem right now on most platforms, but and particularly on Etsy, is you can't find the real makers among all the people reselling no. stuff um, <laughs> and drop shippers, etc. And so, and so people are fine buying something designed by an artist, and then like printed on a t-shirt by a drop shipper um but some people aren't and so just having that transparency of who's making this and where how much is the original seller involved in the process will really help the customers Mm -hmm. that want to shop small want to shop handmade find those stores right um and real quick just to add for you know those listings you mentioned uh resellers not counting, not talking about vintage. This uh bill that we're talking about supporting doesn't apply to secondhand items at all. So it's not gonna make life really okay. difficult for vintage sellers or anything. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. That would be. Really <laughs> exactly. Cool. That's why yeah. there's that exception. They're like, we know you can't find that. It's fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, you know, I have a question for both of you and you can answer it or not if you feel uncomfortable answering it. Do you do you think Etsy is aware of this stuff that is not is it's coming in from overseas that is being drop shipped that is not being made here at all are
2: are they aware of that yeah they're aware they are
0: right oh yes
2: oh yes yeah. they they've actually been issuing transparency reports every year oh, and okay. um they just like so so etsy used to be a public benefit company like back back in the mm-hmm. in the before days <laughs> and um <laughs> and uh they part of being a public benefit. Benefit company is issuing trans- like reports, being a, having a certain um, standards of transparency. Um. whenever mm-hmm. the corporate takeover of 2017 happened they didn't stop issuing transparency reports but what they've done is oh, just wow. gradually had less and less information in those transparency reports but yeah <laughs> what those contain every year and we've actually done a rundown of this on our blog but what, what they contain every year is actually their their information on their enforcement on their platform and um, in, in the before times you can see there were you know all these reports of hey these people are this is violating your handmade policy and there were shops being taken Mm -hmm. down as a result of those and then they completely it was like it went from like you know 70% or something like that and, and they were actually being reviewed by human employees and then and then you just see that completely drop off the face of the earth where they're suddenly not not actually taking any shops hardly any shops down and no humans are involved anymore. So,
0: yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's our future, our dystopian future, <laughs> I think, when it comes to that kind of stuff. The, like, amount of, like, weird AI conversations I've had recently in, like, customer service situations is uncanny. It's know, oh, right? You're like, I'm pretty sure this isn't a real person, but... I almost think they
3: are. You know? Yeah, it's that weird like it was almost easier when it was just clearly an auto reply where it's like, which category I does know. your problem fall in? Click and then it go through. Now it's like pretending to be a person, but you're like, people don't talk like that. Oh <laughs> If
0: you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy Find us on Instagram at shop underscore Velvet Underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearst.evens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wearst.evens. That's wearst.evens. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love, and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore unicornia, underscore yarns, and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand, ethically made by hand from vintage and deadstock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over ten years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, We try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at cute little ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre love decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the Pewter Thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans with something for every budget. Discover more at the pewterthimble.com. Com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made?, Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. Wow, thank you to Christy and Chiara for spending some time with me. It was such a blast. And they will be back next week to share more of the stuff the Indie Sellers Guild is doing, including something really important that involves how some sellers are are being paid. And spoiler, it's really unfair. It's really messed up. Uh, It actually relates to the reserve that Chiara mentioned. So you'll hear all about that next week, among many other things. In the meantime, please go join the Indie Sellers Guild. You don't have to be a seller to join. I'm not, and I joined. I'll share links for you to do that in the show notes, as well as how you can take the Marketplace Research Study and how you can share your own stories about unethical Etsy sellers. We'll be sharing a lot more content on on Instagram over the next couple of weeks about the stuff that the Indie Sellers Guild is working on. So check that out there too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, I would love, absolutely love for you to leave a rating and maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell your friends. That's thats how Clothes Horse was made, right? Friends telling friends telling friends. If you have something to add to the conversation, a story about your own Etsy experiences, your thoughts on what's been happening with Etsy, or maybe some weird purchases you've made on Etsy that ended up being disappointing, please, I implore you, you can send me an email at, at world. You can write that email out, or you can even record an audio message. Just be sure to let me know if you're okay with it being included in the episode, I also just want to take a moment to say that I am currently kind of trying to take a little bit of a break from Instagram. I'm still going to be sharing content there, but I have my DMs turned off and I just need a little bit of that space right now, a little bit of that time. Um I'm tired. I'm really really tired. And a big part of that is, you know, I'm one person. I think I think sometimes I don't know, maybe I'm being being a little humble braggy here, but Close Horse feels like it's a lot of people working on it and it's really not. And because it is unfortunately not a financially rewarding project, it means I also have to work, right? And so this is what I do in all the times that I'm not working for money. I'm working for free and it, It's a lot more work than you would think. You know, I just get a lot of emails and DMs every day asking me for career advice, small business advice, help with school projects, to be interviewed for a research paper, to Google something for someone, give them advice. You know, I hear a lot of nightmare work stories and I'm a person that people come to to share things, which I I am so honored and and appreciative of all of that. And I love hearing from all of you, but the reality is that like, I'm one person doing all of these things and it, it kind of every once in a while, I just hit a point where I feel like I'm breaking a little bit, that there's not enough of me to go around and that I'm just going to disappoint everyone. So, When that happens, I try to do things to give myself some space. And right now that is turning off my DMs on Instagram. That doesn't mean that I don't want to hear from you, but I would really appreciate if you would just take the time to email me instead. I had this revelation last week that, you know, some of the messages I get take five to 10 minutes to respond to because they're so intensive in terms of the information that people want. and. If I get ten messages like that in a day, that's an hour and a half of work right there. But it's often way more, and so I'm just trying to slow that flow down. And my feeling is that the the hardcore fans of the closed Horse community—they're listening to this podcast and they'll email me, and so it will stem, it will slow the flow just a little bit, right? <laughs> so please reach out, but don't DM me. That was a really long explanation. Anyway, if you would like to support my work financially, there are many ways that you can do that. You can do it at patreon.com slash closehorsepodcast. You can sign up for the Apple premium subscription, which is just a couple bucks, gives you access to our full archives. And if you've listened to every episode like 17 times already, well, then you know what you get to do is say, Wow. I'm supporting this work that matters to me and has brought me so much entertainment and information and company, and it's so easy to just do it that way, right? Um, there are other ways to support my work that you can learn about in my Instagram profile, and most importantly, you support me every week by showing up and listening to this. Lastly, speaking of support, we have to thank Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support and also Wish him a happy anniversary because this is our 7 year anniversary of being married. So happy anniversary to us. I'm I'm a very lucky person. All right, I'll see you all next week. Bye.